Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Diego Silva of Sydney Health Ethics and friend of She, Maxwell Smith from Western University. Thanks so much for joining us, Diego and Max. It's great to have you both here. And today we're talking about vaccine mandates, today's hot button topic. So um, I'll be honest, I don't know that much about vaccine mandates or how they're working. So I'm really curious to hear from both of you who've um, spoken a little bit about these, at least either in the media or in your work or on Twitter. So um, <laughs> very curious to hear what you think. So Diego, why don't you start us off? What What do you think are kind of the central moral issues with vaccine mandates? Yeah, so I think that it depends on what constitutes the vaccine mandate in the first place. So usually the idea is, is that um, you can't do certain things unless you are vaccinated in this case uh, with the COVID-19 vaccine, either partially vaccinated or fully vaccinated, usually being the latter. So I think the, the obvious issue is what do you do in situations where somebody doesn't want to be vaccinated. So presumably, I think we can just set aside issues of people who, for medical reasons, can't be vaccinated. I think, yeah, th- those we can sort of just set aside. So I think the, the, the main issue is what do we do with individuals who don't want to be vaccinated for whatever number of reasons. Um, so I think there's more hardline stances, um, which is uh, vaccines are bust. And we'll get into, I think we can get into why that is the case. Um, And then then I think there's certain, you know, other measures that say, well, you know, you need vaccine mandates, or perhaps you're, you know, you're permitted to have vaccine mandates for things that are kind of trivial pursuits. I don't know how else you'd put it, like, you know, going to a hockey game or going to a footy match versus, you know, going to, you know, shop for groceries, as it were. Um, and then also in terms of, you know, testing. So I think this is a really interesting role. Is there a role for testing or is there a role for other, other mechanisms? What is the goal of a vaccine mandate? So is it to have people vaccinated is it to protect public health or do the both dovetail? Do they separate? So I think there's a whole host of different issues that we sort of think about when we think about vaccine mandates. Diego, before I ask Max to give us his point of view, what is the difference between the to protect individuals and the public health part? So I think there's there's a sense in which there's a sense in which we can have vaccine mandates because they're the best way uh, to ensure the public's health. But it's not clear that it's the only way to ensure the public's health. So France is a really good example of a jurisdiction uh, and I don't know actually how it divides within the country, but at least at a federal level, and Max, you might actually know more about the details, where there's at least a test, there's an option to test, right? It's very cumbersome. You know, for example, they only accept PCR, so they only accepting molecular testing, not rapid antigen testing as, as the sort of the, the marker for that. But the idea is, is that even if that's not ideal, even if that's cumbersome, uh, you at least have that second option by which if you provide a test within, I think it's 48 or 72 hours, you can go into the Louvre or you can go, you know, wherever it is that you want to go to, like Park the Pines to see a you know, PSG play or whatever case. So I think there's a distinction where, um, you know, what, you know, if what we're doing is for the public's good, for, you know, for the public's health, um, 
the vaccine mandate might play out differently than saying, you know, we need vaccines because that is the golden ticket out of the pandemic. So, yeah, I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Right. Yeah. Thank you. So, Max, what do you think? What do you think are the main moral issues when it comes to vaccine mandates? Yeah, so I think on the one hand, you know, we're clearly experiencing uh, close to two years now of a very tragic pandemic that has has really damaged a lot of people's lives and a lot of lives have been lost. Uh, So that's sort of the calculus on the one hand. And on the other hand, we have uh, this intervention that we've developed that is very safe and very effective and actually is, is quite good at avoiding or preventing those outcomes. And so already we sort of have this tension. Well, uh, it shouldn't be a tension at this point, but uh, we need to be taking or, or utilizing this intervention to avoid those outcomes. And so the question emerges, which speaks to what, what Diego raised, is what if some people aren't willing to take that intervention? In many cases, we may not care uh, if it's a matter of their personal health. Uh, we ought to care, and there's reasons why we might care, but some people might not care. But what we're seeing in some jurisdictions Uh, I'm thinking of Alaska at the moment, Alberta, a province in in Canada. We're seeing hospitals being overwhelmed by patients who haven't been vaccinated. And so this has caused people to think, well, perhaps because we have such a safe and effective vaccine that we ought to compel people to take it to avoid those sorts of uh, negative outcomes. So I think what we're really seeing here is, uh, is, is this question of what sacrifices can we ask individuals to make in service of broader public health and protecting uh, capacity in our healthcare system, which of course has implications for anyone who needs uh, that sort of acute healthcare. Of course, there's a a number of different issues that mandates create, such as issues potentially around discrimination, uh, issues around coercion and informed consent and and other sorts of issues. But I I would say that that's the central moral tension that we're we're seeing with mandates at the moment. Right. And so it sounds like it's really a question of um, the kind of collective impact, especially talking about the healthcare system, the collective impact on the healthcare system versus the um, individual's decisions to, well, and I guess the individual's um, risk tolerance, really, kind of because they might be aware that they could get sick, but they might not yeah, I think when, be that bad. When we talk in those terms, I think people quickly Uh, start to imagine that, well, everyone's health choices in some way have this broader effect on the health system and takes up a bed and and uses up resources. And so ought we not to compel things like eating healthily and and all sorts of other things. And in many ways we we do, we regulate um, many spaces of our our lives to make sure that we're avoiding those those adverse outcomes. But in particular with a, a pandemic as severe as we're experiencing and an intervention as effective as it is, this just provides the context where mandates and, and really, um, you know, trying to find an intervention that we, we need people to take uh, carries a lot more weight, I think. Now, I have a question that's, I don't know, maybe a little bit difficult to answer, but my question is, at what point should we turn to mandates, I guess, because um it's obviously been discussed here in Australia. And as you said, you know, in Canada and in France and in all of these different countries, there's a decision about what to require and when and how. And part of me wonders if mandates should be rolled out kind of from the beginning, or if we should wait until we see a kind of sufficient amount of vaccine hesitancy. And I don't know what a sufficient amount of vaccine hesitancy means exactly, but 
we know that we need to have really high levels of um, vaccination in the population, like 80 to 90% um, for true kind of um, community protection. So should we be waiting until we know that we can't get to that stage because of people's vaccine hesitancy? Or is it better to kind of, I guess, in order to avoid some of those serious outcomes, like you were saying, Max, is it better to start early with those? Or what do you think? Should we be kind of rolling the dice? Yeah, I think in general, uh, in, in ethics and generally in policymaking, there, there is a, an attraction to use the least restrictive means possible to achieve the, the objective, your policy objective, whatever it may be. And so it, it does depend on the public health objective that we're after. Is it protecting uh, the capacity of our acute healthcare system? Is it trying to achieve herd immunity? Is it trying to protect those most vulnerable in hospitals and long-term care homes and other settings? And whatever we sort of land on, then I think there's an attraction to say, well, let's use the least restrictive means of, of being able to achieve that aim. And so if it's possible to achieve the vaccination rates uh, and coverage in particular settings without a mandate, then I think many would say that's preferable because that's a more favorable risk benefit uh, ratio in that context. The, the challenge here is we don't exactly know when that will be. And if we wait too long, you might experience illness and, and hospitalizations and death that you could otherwise uh, avoid. And so it's it's interesting where you know people will say that mandates, this is a, a pretty heavy-handed measure, doesn't appear to be the least restrictive means to achieve our, our health objective. But of course, in the context of lockdowns and school closures and stay-at-home orders, saying, well, look, we can still go about our business, uh, keep our hospitals open, keep going to work, keep our kids in school, so long as we're all vaccinated. And that avoids the more restrictive measure, which would be locking everything down and have everyone, have everyone work from home. So it is certainly uh, ambiguous as to precisely when that line is, but I think that's part of the thinking that goes into determining when to, when to uh, consider such a measure. Yeah, that's a good point about the least restrictive means. I hadn't thought about that. Diego, did you want to comment at all? Yeah, I think it's really interesting what we what constitutes sort of less restrictive. So we we act as if that's on a single continuum or a single value, a single measure. Um, but of course, so, so I don't I don't disagree with Max. I I I like being vaccinated because it means I can you know put on a mask and go shopping or go to whatever, right? Um, but it doesn't seem implausible to me that somebody might have a conception of bodily integrity or what constitutes a good for them, such that they find it a much greater offense to be told what to be put into the body rather than to wear a mask indefinitely or, or maybe be locked down. So I think that there's this really interesting question of what it is that we're, what is the good that we're trying to measure when we think about least restrictive means? So you know, this assumes that we agree with the least restrictive means, I'm kind of partial to it. But again, this idea that there's a one singular sort of measure or continuum, I think is kind of something that we need to question. I think another thing, just based on what Max was saying, that I think is kind of really interesting to think about, and you talked about sort of when do you put in vac vaccine mandates. I think the, I think the debate around vaccine mandates, even in the last six to eight months has really changed given what we know in terms of whether vaccines, whether these particular vaccines can actually stop transmission or not. So I think that, I think a lot of the early discussion was not just the effect that 
uh, non-vaccinated people have on the healthcare system. And I think just to further Max's idea, the idea that then you have this trickle-on effect where you have to cancel cancer surgeries, hip surgeries, like, you know, so things that, the things that are, you know, optional, but really aren't optional. Um, so I think that's real. So I think that that's the, I think this is justification now. I think the justification maybe six or eight months ago when we thought the vaccine had a better shot of prevention transmission, and maybe this is prior to Delta, um, was also this idea of actually you need to be vaccinated so as to not infect me. And I think that it's, it's been kind of subtle, the shift in terms of what is being sort of touted as the justification for the vaccine mandate. But I think it's important not to lose sight of the shifting justification. Again, that doesn't mean that the justification can't shift. It's just to sort of be sort of cognizant of that. And I think the reason for that is precisely this idea of when you would institute uh, a vaccine mandate. So I think that, again, it has to do with, you know, we, we recognize that, that, we're, that the vaccines aren't really that great at stopping spread. It seems like it is somewhat effective. Max, you probably know the numbers off the hand better than I do, but it's not at the level that we would need for, say, other vaccines for other infectious diseases, such that you're actually stopping transmission with the, with the vaccine. And so in that case, then, from a public health point of view, so not the health system's point of view, but from a public health point of view, maybe you actually do want testing, right? Maybe if, if you're going to the art gallery, actually what you want is somebody to to, to not only be vaccinated, right? So this would be kind of an extreme counter counterpoint. You don't want people just to be vaccinated. You want to make sure that they're not asymptomatic either. So actually what you need is a robust testing system. And, and maybe in that case, you know, we are actually depending on rapid antigen testing, say something like that. So I think that, again, I think that when we institute the a vaccine mandate, in part depends on, and this goes back to Max's point, what is the goal of, what is it that you're trying to achieve in the first place? And it's certainly the case, uh, at least given present data, that the, um, well, at least I can't speak for every single vaccine, but um, the, the main vaccines that are being used in, in places like Australia and Canada uh, are, are effective at uh, reducing the risk of transmission and infection, um, you know, perhaps not to the rate that they're preventing things like hospitalization and death, but they certainly do reduce that risk. And so, um, you know, it could be a matter of how much they reduce it that we start thinking, think about, thinking about that sort of question. But um, I think it, it's certainly the case that they, they do provide that benefit. And to Diego's point, um, you know, we should, I think, uh, not think about this in as an either or situation that it's either a, a vaccine mandate or testing. Um, in some situations, you see both, right? You see uh, you have a vaccine uh, mandate, which will ensure that we're reducing, at least to some extent, risk of infection and transmission. So that at least has some protective effect and we'll test twice or three times weekly to make sure that even if you are a carrier of, of the virus and are coming into work, we can, we can catch that and not just rely on the protective effects of the vaccine. Yeah, which sounds onerous, but I guess that's where we're at at the moment. And I think that kind of, I had a question for you about um, workplace specific mandates. And I think that that kind of segues nicely into this question because there have been a few cases now where it's been particular industries that have been targeted or um, how, where they've faced mandates and healthcare is clearly one of them. And it's pretty easy to understand why that would be an industry that's um, 
first on the mandate list because people who are regularly coming into contact with patients, we would think, you know, you've got to be at the first line. In fact, they're the kind of group one A who's supposed to be vaccinated first before anybody else is vaccinated. Um, so what do you think about the kind of workplace mandates in particular, where in order to go to your job, do your work, you're required to have this. And I guess my second question is again, because I'm not, I don't know, but sort of how necessary is it? Are there really huge numbers of people who are um, vaccine hesitant among say the group of healthcare workers? I think here in Australia, interestingly, paramedics are one of the groups that are um, least vaccinated. And I'm not exactly sure what that is, if it's vaccine hesitancy or if it's been one of the many issues with the vaccine rollout here that people are still coming to grips with perhaps, but they seem like a group who really ought to be vaccinated, if not to protect others. Although I, I think that that's a reason to protect themselves because they come into contact with so many people and protect their loved ones then at home and their communities back at home. So should we be sectioning out these parts of society and saying, well, if you work in industry X, we need you to be vaccinated and we're going to mandate that. But if you work in, you know, any of these other industries, we we're not going to mandate it, but we're still going to ask you nicely. What do you think? So I think there certainly are settings and populations where uh, a mandate is much uh, more strongly justified uh, by virtue of the populations perhaps that they're working closely with, they might be more vulnerable or because of the greater risks of infection or transmission within the setting that they're, they're uh, we're thinking about. So healthcare, we're working with vulnerable populations, uh, close contacts, long-term care homes, very vulnerable populations. Then you can think about universities where we've seen lots of mandates, uh, at least in North America. Um, these are settings where thousands of people are congregating indoors uh, and you know, there's a greater potential for uh, the risk of infection and transmission. And so they've been implemented in those settings as well. Um, in settings where you know, people aren't working with uh, members of the public who are at greater risk, uh, and their their job, perhaps you're working outdoors, you're you're a, a park ranger. I would suspect that the the risks are lower there, and so the justification would be less in those settings as well. Just to go back to kind of tying in the last two questions that you had, Kate, about sort of when vaccine mandates, and now sort of in terms of who is subject to the vaccine mandate in terms of their job. So in Australia, for example, we had Scott Morrison back in what was it June saying that there was going to be a vaccine mandate for aged care workers uh, to have a single dose by somewhere in mid-September or late September. I'm forgetting off the top of my head. So in that instance, we're talking about a situation where there was no, there was very poor vaccine rollout, where we know, given the accounts of people who were working in aged care, that there were very serious uh, access issues to, to vaccines despite being a priority group. So in that instance, that's an example where I think the vaccine mandate was just out and out wrong, right? There was no attempt at working with, in fact, there was clear sort of abandonment by the government towards aged care workers. And then all of a sudden, you know, th things hit the fan and all of a sudden they went to the hard stick of, of a vaccine mandate. So there's an example where I think it jumped way too quickly. 
Um, and I think, again, it, it ties back to the sector itself. So I think that when we were talking about the, the sectors that, that are at play, I think it, it also depends on uh, what measures have been instituted to educate, to sort of promote the vaccine in the first place. I think, um, again, I think it really matters uh, what the activity is. So healthcare workers, I would say, are probably top of the line, top, front, of, front of the queue of being vaccinated uh, through a vaccine mandate. Um, because they are even whatever marginal gains you get from protection of the vaccine to others, um, you know, those little margins count, you know, uh, park ranger maybe doesn't count at all. Construction work is a different interest and it's an interesting one, right? So if you're doing construction outdoors, you know, does the marginal gain of vaccination to protection of others, does that matter? Um, but there you're in a situation where maybe as an industry, you don't want to have uh, a lot of days lost to illness right? Because it can put back your project. So again, I think of the, the, I think of the reasons that an industry might mandate a vaccine might not even be health reasons, right? Uh, they might not have to do anything with public health. Um, uh, and, you know, we force people to do all sorts of things in their jobs, you know, whether they want to or not. Uh, you know, again, construction, I'm pretty sure you can't work, you know, even walk onto a construction site without a hard hat and hard boots, uh, or, you know, steel toe boots, you know. Um, so, you know, is it because they really care about their employees? Yeah, partially, but it also because, you know, they're liable or, again, it sort of puts their work back, you know, timeline-wise. So I think that there's a whole host of reasons that somebody might justify apart from the goodness of their heart. Yeah, I think it's worth highlighting that there certainly are conditions that ought to be met for a mandate to be ethically justified. Uh, if vaccines aren't readily available and accessible to all those to which the mandate applies, then clearly that's problematic because it's it's unfair to those people because they can't get the access in order to comply with the mandate. So I think that makes total sense. Um, you know, I'm thinking of some settings in, in the province that, I, that I'm in, you know, you do have in long-term care settings, uh, high 90s uh, percentage of coverage of staff working in those settings, but there's other long-term care homes where it's 50%, right? And here you can really think that, I think one of the ethical questions we need to consider is what are, what's the ethics of not putting a mandate in place in those settings? Is that something that is fair to the populations uh, that, that are there? And particularly given the sort of burdens that they've experienced uh, over the course of the pandemic, our, uh, our residents of long-term care homes in Canada uh, have been amongst the, those that have, uh, have been hospitalized and, and died the most in this pandemic. And if we're seeing that only 50% of the staff and healthcare workers working with them have been vaccinated, then does call into question whether we're doing enough to protect those populations. And so while there are ethical considerations around the use of mandates, I think there are still good ethical reasons to think that, you know, if we don't do it, we're, we're facing some trouble as well. I think this is really interesting, this example that you just gave, right? Because the, the thing that jumps to my mind is, how is it that you have one aged care facility that has 90 plus vaccination and another one that has 50 plus? So again, I, I agree that I think the mandate is there to protect and oftentimes we lose fact of that. We, we lose sight of that, right? So we just think about sort of the whatever, freedom versus whatever, but actually it's there to protect population like an aged care population in, in home. But like, why is that? What, you know, like, you know, what are the, I think one of the things that gets lost are 
the context and the histories in which we're actually instituting public health measures A and then B, vaccine mandates, right? So, you know, Max, I know you, you, you've thought about this a lot, but this idea of, okay, well, you know, what's the population that's working at a particular home, right? Um, do they have reasons to distrust? You know, are there long-term ramifications to mandates on public health trust that we're underplaying? Um, so I, I, again, I think that it's, it's not that the vaccine mandates aren't justified, but I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of minding your P's and Q's before you get to the point of having a mandate. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And the point about, um, public health potentially undermining trust in public health by doing this is a really important consideration, I think. And it kind of leads into the next um, question that I wanted to ask, which really is a thorny one, but it was, I was going to ask you, is it fair to make people choose between going to work and getting vaccinated? And I think, Diego, what you've kind of just brought up there is that part of the answer might depend on who it is we're talking about and what their history is and what their experience is within the country in general and how they experience the um, overall impact of public health orders. Because in Australia, there have been really differential impacts of the even the lockdown. Um, and it's become kind of common to talk about um, two cities or two Sydneys or two Australias. Um, and I even heard it on the radio this morning before uh, recording this, a tale of two cities where you know people in the East have had very different experience from people in the West of Sydney. So I do still want to ask you, is it fair to be seen to be making people choose between going to work and um, being vaccinated or kind of however we might want to phrase that value? It might be bodily integrity. It might be a kind of religiously informed belief. It might be just fear, not understanding. Um, so risk perception, perhaps. And how do we deal with the fact that we live in very diverse societies where people actually have had really different experiences of public health through this pandemic? First off, it's it's important to really emphasize that mandates can't be the only measure we put in place, right? So there's lots of different things that we ought to do to protect people's health and safety. And as Diego mentioned, even before mandates are considered, we need to be doing the, the more difficult work of engaging with people's reasons for not being vaccinated and ensuring that different populations and, and the, their issues of trust or whatever it may be are adequately addressed. So I think that that goes without saying and it needs to be uh, put into place uh, in any case when we're thinking about a mandate. When, when we think about whether it's fair to ask people to make this choice about working uh, in a particular setting or not, if they're choosing uh, not to be vaccinated, you know, fairness is a complex issue because on its own, you might think about that in one way, but we also need to think about what is fair to, for instance, the uh, the 90-year-old living in a long-term care home and having uh, staff and healthcare workers that are providing them direct care when they're very vulnerable, right? Is it fair to them to not have their um, their, their staff member or healthcare worker vaccinated? So I think, you know, fairness, we can think about this in a lot of different ways, but my view is that if vaccination is a bona fide occupational requirement, uh, like it is arguably in healthcare, long-term care, 
then it is fair to say that that is an employment condition. If you are unwilling to meet that condition, then you must find work elsewhere, right? This is just something that's required. To Diego's point, hard hats and steel-toed shoes are also required in construction. It's a bona fide um, uh, safety requirement. I also think when we think about fairness, uh, you know, we think about how a mandate might disproportionately affect some populations. We also need to think about how mandates are actually protecting the most vulnerable populations. So those that can't be vaccinated, or even if are vaccinated, tend to be at greater risk. They might have a breakthrough infection, and if so, they might get severely ill and sick. Mandates will go far to actually protect those populations as, as well. So I think a lot of the equity and fairness questions are often brought up in consideration of those that might be negatively affected by a mandate, but we do need to think about who it protects as well. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's well put. Um, I think that, yeah, to, 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 I think the word that we're not using that we can use is coerce, right? Are we coercing healthcare workers into, you know, choosing between your job and your, and to me, um, we coerce people all the time. Like, I think that we're afraid of using the, this word coercion, um, but we coerce people all the time. Um, we force people's hands all the time. Um, and a lot of, there's, a, there's one way of thinking of political philosophy, certainly in the last two, 300 years, as figuring out exactly what are the limits of state coercion, right? We don't, maybe that's not a common way of thinking about political philosophy, but a lot of, you know, a lot of the stuff we spend our time on is precisely that, you know, what's the legitimate and justified use of state coercion. So I think that, uh, I think that, yeah, I think that it, there, there are instances where we can sort of have these, um, these mandates. I think to Max's point, I think a lot of these mandates potentially hinder and potentially benefit the same vulnerable populations. Um, so I think that is actually yet another level of complexity um, is that I think that within Within populate, you know, within uh, populations in Western Sydney, um, you know, you would have a very, very different uh, understanding of, of vaccine mandates depending on who you ask as individuals. So I think that there's a sense in which we tend to homogenize people, and we all know that we ought not to. And this is just one of the risks of dealing with public health is that you're often dealing with generalizations. But I think this is an instance where sort of being cognizant of the heterogeneity, even within a group, is really important for the reasons that kind of Max was getting to as well. I'd like to jump in on the coercion question, if I may, because this is something that's, that's curious to me. Um, because Diego's right, in jobs, uh, we, we require that people do all sorts of things that they probably wouldn't otherwise do with the threat of some sort of sanction and often dismissal, right? So you have to show up uh, to work on time. If you're a surgeon, you have to wash your hands before operating. You know, if you choose not to do these things, you're fired, right? And so in a, in a very straightforward way, we can consider that to be coercive because it's, it's asking you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do with a threat of, of uh, uh, with threat or force or something like that. Um, so I think in one sense, everything we do uh, in a job is coercive in some, in some respect. Uh, I tend to not think that way. I think that actually none of it is coercion. Um, I think those are just employment conditions. We have choices not to work in those settings. And so I don't think that it actually uh, amounts to coercion. I think coercion in, in the morally relevant sense should really um, be, be focused on this idea of 
a choice being irresistible, right? It's one that you have no other option available to you just because of how heavily weighted one of those choices is. And I don't think that's the case in, with jobs, to be honest. I think, you know, like I said, for, for working in healthcare, if vaccination is a bona fide occupational requirement uh, and you don't want to be vaccinated, you ought to not work in healthcare, right? There's other sorts of jobs for you. Um, so I, I think that at that stage, um, really, there remains a choice for you, depending on where you want to work or whether you want to meet those employment conditions or not. Um, it's, it's strictly in those cases where the choice is irresistible for you to be vaccinated, um, where I would think that this amounts to coercion. But like Diego said, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. There still can be legitimate uses of coercion by the state. Yeah, I mean, I actually think that this fits your definition like, I, I think this actually fits your definition of coercion, Max. So say that it is a matter of it being irresistible. I think if somebody spent their life training for a particular profession uh, and then uh, has worked in the professions for 10, 15 years, and then they're told that they have to do this thing um, that maybe they hadn't agreed to prior, you know, through, through their training, they hadn't agreed to, they couldn't have foreseen couldn't have been actually properly informed, you know, informed, consented to the idea of, a, you know, so on and so forth. I think in that case, it's very, you know, the, the your money or your life is very similar in this instance, right? It is your livelihood. It's not only your livelihood, it's your sense of identity, right? We identify as being nurses, or doctors, or whatever the case might be. So I think it absolutely is an instance of being irresistible. Um, in any sort of intuitive sense of what that word means, or sort of common, you know, common sense of a version of that word, that doesn't mean it's wrong. So I guess this is the this is to be the thing, right? Is that is that just because we don't think about being coerced all the time doesn't mean that we're not. And I think that it's a, it's a live debate, right? Whether you take the position that coercion ought to only be reserved for instances of things that are morally incorrectly irresistible. So you can think of it just merely in a sort of normative sense, or you can think about it in a sort of descriptive sense and then sort of the moral evaluation thereafter. And I, I tend to think in the latter just because I think it makes, I think it's prudent from, again, from thinking in terms of state actions, it makes sense to think of, to actually reserve descriptive sense of coercion, which then we can evaluate even if we don't think about it in those terms kind of day to day. I don't know if that really makes any material difference to what we're saying next, but- No, it, it <laughs> does, it does absolutely. I, I wonder if the, uh, the employment conditions that we're asking people to meet, uh, whether the reasonableness of those conditions matters, right? Because if you've been working in a particular job for 30 years and all of a sudden we implement this employment condition that is completely unrelated to your job and very unreasonable to meet and, and hard for you to meet, then it does seem in, in a sense more coercive to say you have to meet it or we'll fire you. If the conditions of your job or the conditions within which your job operates, like a, a pandemic emerges, requiring those employment conditions to change for you to do your job uh, in a way that's uh, healthy and safe. So new health and safety requirements are required given the, the context that we find ourselves in, and that requires your employment conditions to change to, to, be, uh, to meet those standards of health and safety. I'm not sure it's coercive to ask people to meet those conditions because they're very reasonable employment conditions in many senses. If it's unreasonable, uh, going back to, I'm not going to 
uh, stake my life on this, but requiring vaccination for the park ranger, then perhaps you could say, well, that's an unreasonable employment condition and, and requiring that people meet it uh, has more of a course of force. I'm not sure. To, to, go, to go back to the paradigmatic example of, you know, somebody with a gun to your head and your life or your money, it's quite reasonable to have to be like, I'm required to give my money in this instance. Right? There's a way of describing the action is to say that's a reasonable choice that you're taking. Right. So, again, I think that we can say that for the healthcare worker, it's quite reasonable that the situation has changed, but it feels no less or is no less of a very much a dual choice. It's a one. It, I, I guess the thing is that it, it doesn't allow. It doesn't allow for gradation. Either you meet this criteria or you don't. Either you have this job because of this criteria or you're out. To me, that seems like coercion by any other name. Again, I repeat, doesn't mean it's unreasonable. So again, it can be perfectly reasonable to have this new requirement and to have this discussion about the park ranger versus the healthcare worker. I'm going to argue that your money or your life is an unreasonable choice if we compare it to meet these employment conditions that are bona fide occupational uh, safety requirements uh, or, or else you will so be dismissed. So there's the actual context of being placed to make that choice in the first place. And then there's the reasonableness of the choice once you're in that position. So it sucks that we're in the middle of a pandemic and that you're actually forcing people to make this choice, right? So you can you can you can argue, but, but the reasonableness of the choice once you're in a position of whatever whether you want to call it coercion or not, the reasonableness of the choice in that instance is a different one altogether. I think, although I agree that the situation in which you get into it in the first place, one's unreasonable. I would say one's right, and the other one is just circumstance, or one's wrong, and the other one's just circumstance. Yeah, requiring that someone is vaccinated, in my view, is a reasonable request. Putting a gun to their head on that side of the equation is not reasonable and that is never reasonable, right? So in the employment context, that's a reasonable ask. Even if it's a situation you'd rather not find yourself in, it's a reasonable ask, at least for some, for some jobs. Right, right, right. But, the, but, but again, I think that the coercion doesn't have to deal with the reasonableness aspect of the which of the situation in which you find yourself. Anyways, we're going round and round. <laughs> and I think that's really interesting because I think what, I, what I'm hearing is that, Diego, you think that the overall context can be a coercive one. And then we can decide within that whether or not someone is making a reasonable or an unreasonable demand of you. I think, I think, I think this is one of the issues that we that is that we go on about in terms of organ sales. So, which I, you know, you know, are people coerced into selling their organs? It's like, yeah, but the choice might still be reasonable for them to do it, even though empirically we know that it doesn't actually lead to benefits in their life overall. Blah blah blah, and the money, you know. So whatever we can, um, yeah. You know, again, it sucks that they're fa- that, that 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 they're put in that position. It's morally reprehensible that they're put in that position, um, right? Because of contextual historical reasons, they're sort of placed in that position in the first place. So, um, but yeah, yeah. And then what I think Max was saying is that not every one of those scenarios could be described as coercive and would resist using the umbrella coercive term for all kinds of requirements that we ask people to fulfill. 
and that employment-based conditions would not fall under the umbrella of coercion in the usual sense. I mean, the, the worry people have about coercion is often because it uh, vitiates the voluntariness of informed consent to get the vaccine, right? And that's the worry people have is if informed consent, one of the conditions is that it be voluntary and you're saying, well, they're being coerced uh, to be vaccinated, then it's no longer voluntary and therefore informed consent uh, does not apply. And I, and I think, you know, in this case, uh, you know, the, the, the moral sense in which informed consent is voluntary uh, exists at the vaccine clinic when you have uh, every opportunity to ask meaningful questions of your healthcare provider, get all the information you need to make the decision and still walk out of the, the vaccine clinic if you feel like you'd rather not be vaccinated. That is the moral, the important moral sense in which vaccination is, is voluntary. That it's required to be in the military or to be an astronaut or whatever it may be is a slightly separate question, right? And you do not need to be an astronaut. You do not need to be a member of the military. And so I don't think that the requirement that, that attaches to um, being employed in those settings vitiates the voluntariness of your informed consent. Yeah, but I think to decontextualize this is kind of, if you can't separate the choice that you're making in the vaccine clinic apart from the, all the other life story and identity of that individual as they enter the vaccine clinic. So I, I agree at that like one moment in time, but I think this is the problem with having sort of these sort of moment slices in time as it were, right? Is that the, the soldier sees themselves as well, not all soldiers I assume, but many soldiers see themselves as soldiers, a source of identity, a source of pride, so on and so forth, right? So that the that when they're walking into the vaccine clinic, it, it absolutely will weigh on how what what choice they're going to make. Yeah, I I totally agree. And you know the again the the important sense in which it's voluntary is that you know in the vaccine clinic, the healthcare provider you're interacting with, there is no undue pressure uh, to get the vaccine in that setting. If you said, well, you know, I actually am being forced to do this because I want to be an astronaut. The healthcare provider may say, "Well, you could just not be an astronaut, right? If if you really care that much about this this uh, uh, being vaccinated, right?" And and so that's where you know it, it really just turns on this other choice that you have to make about your your vocation, right? Which is separate than your decision about being vaccinated. If you choose that for your vocation, then you know it's not you're not being forced to be vaccinated because you could simply just choose not to have that as your vocation, which has these these particular requirements. So what you're saying is that by becoming an academic, I accepted emails and that I am not just being coerced by my inbox, but it is a matter of something that I, I accepted by choosing to become an academic. Yeah, it was I completely voluntary. Course, <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it there. That was such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Diego and Max, for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you, Kate. Thank you, Diego. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the She Research Podcast. You can find a transcript of our discussion linked in the episode's notes. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts of quality. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye.